Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom and State. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Thank you for joining us the latest edition of the Gist of Freedom. I'm Roy Paul. Tonight, we're going to learn about Maggie L. Walker, the first African-American woman to found a bank and serve as its president in 1899. Maggie Walker was the secretary treasurer for the Independent Order of St. Luke, which was called IOSL, a self-help benevolent society. The bank, St. Luke Petty Savings, was home to the Benevolent Society Self-Help Org under Maggie Walker's leadership. The building is on the National Register of Historic Places. Since obtaining this position, Walker focused on using economic empowerment to defy Jim Crow laws. She did this uh, by a number of things, including establishing the bank, newspaper, and store. Walker was the first African-American woman to found a bank and serve. Under her leadership, entrepreneurship, and her personality, it significantly helped African-Americans across the country gain equality and empowerment. I am joined tonight by Ben Anderson, a tour guide ranger at the National Park Service. Thank you, Mr. Anderson, for spending some time with us. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure to be on the show. Yeah, so if you can give us a, a one, two, three synopsis of Maggie L. Walker and her plight, taking all the way back as far as you know in terms of her early upbringing. Uh, sure. Uh, she was born uh, in Richmond uh, in 1864. Uh, of course, Richmond at that time was uh, was still the active capital of the Confederacy. Uh, and to make the plot uh, very thick, uh, she was born in the home of a Union spy, uh, a white woman named Elizabeth Van Lu. Uh, her mother, uh, Elizabeth Mitchell, was working as a cook for Ms. Ms. Lou at the time. And to make the plot even thicker, uh, her father was an Irishman, uh, and uh, Mandy Meckles Cuthbert, who was also a Confederate soldier. Uh, so for an African-American born in the capital of the Confederacy, in the home of a Union spy, to a Confederate soldier, uh, <laughs> it doesn't get much more uh, dramatic uh, and interesting than that. Um, but, uh, of course, we don't know as much about uh, as we'd like about uh, the nature of the relationship between her mother and uh, her biological father. We know that, of course, laws and the books prevented them from getting married, even if they wanted to. We don't even know that um, for, for over, over 100 years. But uh, her mother marries a gentleman named William Mitchell soon after uh, Maggie was born, uh, and uh, they seem to uh, seem, seem to have been happily married for, for many years. But her mother, uh, you know, her stepfather, William Mitchell, passes away when Maggie is quite young, uh, and her mother uh, takes to doing laundry, uh, become, becoming a laundress or washerwoman, as they're often referred to. 
and, and, of course, Maggie helps her out doing this, of course, finds out firsthand, you know, how difficult this work was, of course, in an age, as we often remind our visitors, uh, before washing machines and dryers, when it all had to be done by hand, it was extremely time-consuming, very physical uh, in nature, uh, and, uh, and basically, you know, watches her mother uh, work as hard as she possibly could uh, to, make, to make enough money to send, uh, send Maggie through, through school. Maggie will graduate from high school in 1883 uh, with a small graduating class of just 10 students, something that we use uh, the site to remind our visitors she was a member of the first generation of African-Americans uh, to get a high school education uh, in the years after the Civil War. Uh, and it was something that she, uh, I think, that was, was very important to her. We have her high school diploma. Uh, on display at the site. It's in her home, uh, something that we take visitors to uh, there at the site. Uh, and for the rest of her life, she'll, she'll talk uh, talk eloquently about the, how important it was for anyone to get uh, to get a uh, to get a good education. She knew, of course, firsthand how how rare it was uh, for her for her to get one. Uh, knew how hard her mother had worked to get hers, and really saw to it uh, that not only did her her own children get a good education uh, as they were growing up, but uh, but really worked hard to to create those kinds of opportunities for for others. Um, something that I think gets lost a little bit when we talk about Maggie Walker as as the entrepreneur, which she certainly was. You know that that line about her being the first you know, African American female uh, to to start a bank and serve as president uh, is certainly true and certainly um, and certainly great and impressive and significant. Uh, but education was one of her biggest uh, was one of her biggest uh, one, it was one of the causes that she was really really passionate about too. Um, but right after she graduates high school, though in 1883, uh, she actually is able to turn around and uh, start teaching in the Richmond public school system. Something that actually was not allowed uh, for uh, for African Americans at that time up until uh, the year she graduates in 1883. A law is passed allowing for the first time uh, African Americans to actually teach. Uh, in African-American schools. Up to that time, it had only been uh, white teachers in black schools. Um, so she starts teaching for three years, but when she when she marries her husband, Armstead Walker uh, Jr. in 1886, uh, a different law in the books forces her out of the profession because the assumption uh, at that time uh, was that once a woman uh, gets married, uh, she is a teacher, she has to quit her job. Uh, the assumption was that uh, you know, that she would want to have children and that uh, someone would have to be at home raising the children. And I often tell visitors that this was, of course, a law passed at a time before institutionalized daycare was even really a thing. Um, so she's, you know, her, her career ambitions as an educator are cut short, but uh, she had joined the, the IOSL uh, as a high school student. Uh, and as you put it uh, in your intro, this was an organization that was really uh, designed to uh, to empower uh, the African Americans in the U.S. after slavery. It was really focused primarily on providing insurance uh, to its members, providing uh, sick benefits and death benefits, helping them cover things like doctor's bills uh, and burial costs. Um, <clears throat> but while she was in high school, or certainly uh, around that time, she, she identifies, uh, I think, of what she might have called a fatal flaw uh, with the organization, and that was uh, that she was one of the youngest members uh, in the organization, first of all, uh, and that no one had it as their job to recruit young people. Uh, and she saw this as a big problem because she felt that as long as that continued to be true, then uh, it wasn't too difficult uh, to imagine a day when all of these older members uh, would pass away. With them, inevitably, would go the organization itself, and with that uh, would go the insurance service uh, that it was designed to provide. So 
Uh, one of the things I often tell my tour groups as they come through is that what's important to remember about that is that uh, you know Mrs. Walker again you know goes on to become most famous as the entrepreneur that, that we most know that we know her most for uh, starting the bank and the newspaper and the department store. But uh, before she does any of that, uh, she makes it her first mission as as a member of the order. Uh, to start a branch of membership just for young people. She saw that as really the key for keeping the organization going uh, indefinitely. Uh, so in 1895, she starts uh, what gets known as the Juvenile Department. And as a branch of membership uh, for, for young people, you could sign up as young as age eight. And, uh, and she realized that you couldn't just go out into the community and just tell young people about it and hope they'll sign up. You had to entice them in some, some form or fashion. And she came up with ideas about uh, offering them uniforms, matching hats and jackets, uh, giving them ranks, and you became a cadet when you signed up. Uh, you could take part in annual parades throughout the city. There were beauty contests, there were dances, there were educational components uh, to the meetings and so forth. Uh, and the goal of the juvenile department was, was, was very simple. It was just to bring children in in large numbers, uh, teach them important lessons about life, let them, of course, have a good time in the process, but, it, of course, hope that they'll uh, keep their membership into their adult years and thereby you know, keep the organization yeah. going. And, uh, uh, Mr. And Anderson, uh, I'm yes, going to ask you if you can just slow down just a little bit and speak a little louder if you oh, can. Cool. Um, there's, there's some muffling that's coming through on your phone. Um, oh, I, I, I want you to delve into a couple of things um, because of all of the entrepreneurial things uh, that she was doing. But before we do that, I want to bring in a caller uh, who has a question for you, if we can bring the caller sure. through, um, and then we'll get back to the discussion. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I'm getting in a little late, but I wanted to know if uh, Miss Walker, Maggie Walker, is any relation to Madam C.J. Walker, mm. and I'll take my answer offline. Sure. Uh, yeah, there is no known relationship uh, that we know of. Um, it's just a coincidence, uh, I think, that they happen to live during the exact same time period uh, and happen to be, of course, uh, known for just about the same kind of thing, uh, both, of course, being very successful, very famous you know, African-American female entrepreneurs you know, at the turn of the century uh, with similar names. Um, Madam C.J. Walker's name uh, – initially was Sarah Breedlove. Uh, that's how she was born, I believe, in 1867. Um, she doesn't acquire the name Walker until she marries, uh, and I forget the exact year. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no known relation uh, between the two, just, just a coincidence. Uh, they were, of course, both, uh, as I mentioned, very, very successful entrepreneurs. Um, they were both involved in some of the same organizations as well, and both very philanthropic. Um, so they're... You know, they're they're it's it's something that you know we get asked about a fair amount uh, on tours, but uh, but yeah, no 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 known relationship. Do you know what those organizations were? Sure, uh, the main one I think was was the National Association for Colored Women. Uh, yeah. They're both involved in that at the, at the exact same time, and you know we've tried uh, some of us on on staff, myself included, have tried to put Mrs. Walker, Maggie L. Walker, and Madam C. J. Walker in the same room, um, but have Un, uh, been unable to do so, and uh, you know we know that they were attending conventions of the NACW uh, for years, but uh, they don't seem to have attended the same ones. I think the one that uh, Maggie L. Walker misses in 1918, which is the one out in Denver, Colorado, is one that one, one of the few that Mag, uh, Madam C.J. Walker did end up attending. Uh, so, um, you know, it, it's just you know one of those things where 
you know, they probably, I'm sure, knew of each other. They, they certainly may have met, um, but, um, but, but they're also operating, of course, in, in different cities. Madam C.J. Walker was, was headquartered primarily in Indianapolis. Um, of course, eventually had uh, you know, had offices in Chicago and uh, in New York as well. Um, but, but out in the Midwest, while well, well, Maggie Maggie L. Walker was operating in the uh, East Coast. Can you explain the role of the Benevolent Society? Uh, the Independent Order of St. Luke? Uh, can you explain the role of the Benevolent Societies? Well, the, uh, the Benevolent Society, uh, in general, uh, I, can, I can speak specifically on the Independent Order of St. Luke. Um, but, you know, it's an organization that, uh, that uh, of course, charged money uh, for, for people to become members, but in, in, in turn really provided them uh, with an insurance service. And I know there are lots of other organizations that referred to themselves as benevolent societies at that time uh, doing, doing essentially the same thing. But uh, the idea was that you had an organization that, didn't, that wasn't just simply social in purpose, but it also gave back. It was, there was a philanthropic uh, nature uh, essentially to it. And with the independent order, again, that was uh, that was insurance based. It was providing financial assistance for for doctors' bills uh, and burial costs. And really, the idea for it uh, is is you know comes out really soon after the Civil War, uh, when uh, is something that a lot of you know a lot of ex-slaves will will realize soon afterwards uh, is that yes, while they're while they're emancipated, while they're technically free, they're no longer slaves. There are no uh, there are no laws, there are no rules that force, you know, white business owners uh, to actually, you know, reach their hands out and offer the services uh, of their businesses uh, to uh, to recently freed slaves. And so, uh, so I think one of the things that happens, uh, you know, uh, you know, at once, kind of collectively, among uh, among a great deal of African Americans right after the Civil War, is that this realization that if they wanted access to uh, to some very very basic services like insurance, uh, then there was a sense that they they had to be done. Uh, they had to find a way to do it themselves. And and you know, benevolent societies, and specifically the Independent Order of St. Luke, uh, becomes one of the ways in which they were able to do that. Um, and I think it was a way to cover things that you know I think we can re- we can still relate to uh, that need pretty pretty powerfully. Obviously, we're you know in the context of you know, healthcare reform and 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 a time when rising costs of, of healthcare. Uh, have been have put a big burden on our on our uh, on our on our bank accounts. Uh, we can I think you know uh, understand a little bit you know even though we're kind of far removed from that time when these organizations were established, we can start we still understand a little bit why uh, why why they would have been established in the first place. Right. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, the bank? Um, what? Sure. Uh, how did that start? What kind of resources uh, was necessary in order to do that? Sure. Uh, the bank opens to the public uh, in November of 1903, so it just recently turned 111. It opened on November 2nd uh, of 1903. Uh, it was something that Mrs. Walker had actually been calling for, uh, you know, for the Independent Order of St. Luke to do uh, for about a couple of years before it happened. We have uh, we have some of her speeches in our collection uh, that you know that go back as early as 1901, where she is she is calling for the need of a bank and. Uh, and for other businesses through the Independent Order of St. Luke. Um, I, I think once she became head of the order, she, of course, he didn't need to convince her of the importance of maintaining the insurance service uh, through the Independent Order, but I think one of the things that, that, that she really, really wanted to do 
uh, was to diversify the kinds of services that the Independent Order St. Luke was able to provide its uh, to provide its members. And she thought by doing that, this was then an organization can actually appeal to a lot more people and get more members. And the more members it had, certainly the stronger the insurance business was. But uh, I can invest those profits into other businesses. And uh, the bank wasn't the first thing she started. The first thing she started was uh, the newspaper in 1902. We can come back to that a little later if you'd like. But um, but she opens the bank in, in 1903, and, you know, there's no coincidence uh, that it's the one thing that, that we still talk about today, the one thing that, that she's most well-known for. It was certainly the thing that she was most well-known for at the time as well. Um, you had newspapers all across the country uh, that were carrying the story about the opening of the bank, even months before it happened. Um, you know, I've counted, with all the digital newspapers that are out there today, over over 80 uh, newspapers that were carrying the story uh, from from the late uh, late July and into, into August, soon after the independent order got its charter uh, to open the bank, uh, there were readers as far away as Honolulu reading about it. Uh, <clears throat> but as far as resources were concerned, we know the bank opens with a capital of fifty thousand uh, dollars. We know that it was some it was funded primarily uh, through the independent order of St. Luke. And uh, we have more questions than answers ultimately in in terms of what Mrs. Walker's own background financial education uh, was before she opened the bank. Certainly, she she had uh, she had learned quite a bit uh, about how to run banks. Uh, you know, by then uh, we we just don't know quite how she does it. Uh, we have little bits and pieces of uh, of that knowledge that that appear in, in several sources. One that talks about uh, she writes herself that she went from ten o'clock to twelve o'clock uh, every day for for a long period of time to a local bank called the Merchants National Bank. Uh, and observed how they were running their business. Uh, there was a talk of her going to uh, New York uh, um, in 1902, 1903, um, and, and being able to observe uh, how the banks up there were run as well, um, and uh, and so forth. So we know that she she you know she's able to somehow secure what we might call internships, although that might be uh, you know, might be you know, a little bit off or from from what it really was, but. Uh, that's the best, about as close as we can get in, in terms of understanding her own uh, her own background. But the bank, you know, it was, was something that I think she she felt very strongly about. It, it was it was the kind of business that could uh, could provide uh, a measure of wealth and stability to the entire community. Uh, certainly through the distribution of, of new home loans, uh, new business loans. We know that it does hundreds and hundreds of those, over 600 uh, home and, and business loans. Uh, you know, by the by the 1920s. Uh, we know that uh, she also, of course, is very passionate about creating job opportunities for African American women, uh, which she does with the bank as well. Uh, I think one of the things she was, of course, extremely well aware of uh, for her time uh, during her time was was that African American women had extremely limited uh, job opportunities. Uh, and in Richmond, that appears to have been as true uh, as it was just about everywhere else. Uh, the, I mean, the only jobs open really uh, to African American women were. Uh, we're doing laundry full time, uh, which, of course, uh, as I mentioned earlier, her mother, of course, had done. Um, but uh, you know, working as a domestic servant or working in a factory of some kind. Uh, right. And so, I th- and, and and she was one of those people that that that, that believed strongly, uh, just generally in terms that you know, women's rights were at the center uh, of civil rights. I mean, she, I think, she found it impossible uh, to imagine a, a time in which. African Americans, you know, as a race, could achieve equality in the post-Civil War years unless women were given opportunities to 
uh, to advance in the workplace and in the classroom. So I think part of what was driving her to, to start the bank was knowing uh, that she could use the bank not only to help the community in general, but specifically women. Uh, and I think one of the, the, the photographs that we show our visitors uh, soon after they arrive at the site, you know, when they, when they go on tour with us, uh, is a photograph we believe was to have been taken soon after her bank opened in 1903, showing her you know, sitting in front of uh, you know the opening or the bank where it existed when it opened in 1903, um, with uh, surrounded by her staff, which of course we point out was all African American, a rare thing. Uh, for the time, but also with a ratio, uh, an even ratio uh, of women to men. Uh, and, and, of course, we use that to highlight uh, that, that aspect of, of what was driving her. And, and to remind folks that, yes, it's important that we remember her as an entrepreneur, but you know, I think sometimes when, when we, we think of that word and, and not associated with, you know, with history necessarily, you know, we're often thinking about someone who, who becomes you know, wealthy, on, you know, kind of individually wealthy, and someone who's out there to, uh, to become uh, to become independently wealthy, and she was uh, she was certainly driven by the opposite. I think you know she she was driven into entrepreneurship because of the opportunities she she felt uh, that these businesses could have uh, in terms of, of improving the lives of African Americans, particularly women. Uh, so the bank was 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 a really central part of that. Sounds good. Uh, let's continue this after we get another call around. Yes, thank you. Um, I'm curious about this money she was raising, and I was curious if there was a church affiliation with the Independent Order of St. Luke. Um, Was there a church affiliation, maybe Presbyterian or Catholic? You know, uh, not directly. Uh, We know that the organization was was a Christian-based organization. Uh, A red cross was its uh, was its primary symbol. Uh, it was used in a lot of imagery with, with the order. Of course, it's an organization that takes its name from St. Luke, uh, the figure from the New Testament, the healer from the New Testament. Uh, but that was primarily, I think, to, to communicate to others that this was a Christian-based organization that followed you know, Christian principles, particularly the idea of the importance of, of people helping others. Uh, I think one of its one of its mottos was, you know, benefits for all in our march to success. So it was one that was, you know, Christian based, but primarily, you know, using the figure of Saint Luke to communicate, you know, the, the significance uh, of, of of simply helping others. Um, outside of that, we don't know of a of a specific, you know, church affiliation. I would say there was not one. Um, they had a lot of their meetings in churches. They used lots of churches uh, for for recruiting events, holding you know conventions and meetings and so forth. Um, but when you look at at the churches where they're meeting, they're all over the place. Uh, they're they're in Baptist churches, they're in Methodist churches, they're in Episcopal churches. Um, and so uh, so I would say you know not with one 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 particular church nor even a particular sect, but uh, but just a but but just a Christian based organization in general. Okay, thank you so much. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about the historic site and what we'll see when there? Sure. Um, the the crown jewel of the historic site is Mrs. Walker's home. Uh, that uh, its address is one ten and a half East Lee Street uh, in Richmond, Virginia. Um, <clears throat> the the home itself was where Mrs. Walker lived for the last thirty years of her life. Uh, she moves in with her family in nineteen oh five. Uh, and passes away there uh, in December of 1934. Uh, and so the park actually, the, the site begins uh, in 1978 when the Park Service buys the house from Mrs. Walker's oldest granddaughter, 
1978. Uh, and Harold's granddaughter uh, thankfully still owned it at the time. So Park Service was able to get it directly from the family. Uh, but it takes a while for the park to, to open it to the public. By the time it does in 1985, uh, visitors were only able to see the first floor of the house. Uh, park offices were up on the second floor. Um, <clears throat> but soon after it opened in 85, the park began to set its sights on some of the surrounding buildings, purchasing them so that uh, it could uh, have uh, have a home for, for the collections, uh, it could have a home for some of the staff, and also open up the second floor for visitors. So we're happy to say that uh, that has since been done. So, so visitors now, uh, as opposed to 1985, can go and actually tour uh, the entire home. Uh, but we also have really two other buildings that visitors can see. Uh, the, for, the one we, we hope they come to first and that they ultimately do and have to come to first uh, is the Visitor Center, which is right around the corner uh, from the home on 2nd Street, 600 North 2nd Street. And in there, it's a small, relatively small facility. Um, you walk into uh, our lobby where we have a small bookstore. We have some introductory exhibits there that give you some sense of, of who Mrs. Walker was. Um, we also have uh, a small auditorium uh, where we show visitors a 12-minute introductory film uh, about Mrs. Walker. Uh, we, we often find that our visitors uh, know tend to know very little about her uh, when, when they show up, uh, and so uh, and so having some background exhibits, having having uh, having a video that they can watch, even if that's the only thing they they do, uh, we find that that's a really really helpful thing. Um, but our full tour, the, the full experience, essentially, uh, if I can call it that, uh, is to have visitors come into the visitor center, uh, you know, of course, read all of the introductory exhibits, watch the 12-minute film, uh, and before they take a tour of our house, actually go through another building that we call our exhibit hall. Uh, and that has five rooms in it uh, with artifacts that go into a little bit more, more detail about her life and career uh, than the film had done. And the order is, is for visitors is to come into the visitor center, watch the film, go through the exhibit hall, and then finish up with a tour of her home. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you find that people go there specifically to see the home, or do they go there to see other things and stumble upon the home? Yeah, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, most people, by the time they, they come here, they you know they don't always know uh, that the Park Service has her home. So I, you know, I guess I wouldn't say that they come knowing about the house and, and not about uh, the other buildings necessarily, but if they do know about one building, though, I would say it is usually the house, because um, that, of course, is where the where the site, as I mentioned, originates uh, and uh, and so forth. But um, but yeah, you know, you know, most of most most of the time, you know, we get folks that are that are traveling the country uh, that stumble across the site because you know they they saw signage for it and they had no idea who she was, and so they decided they're just curious. They've got time; they'll stop by and and see. Um, you know, we get a lot of local folks, you know, who uh, who show uh, who show visitors from out of town around. They've they've done homework. They know where we are, but they've never been. Um, and uh, and we get some folks, you know, of course, being a national park service site, we get some folks who are uh, who are you know sometimes primarily interested in in you know checking off national parks on their list. Uh, the park service has a uh, has a has a what's called a passport uh, stamp program uh, where. Um, where uh, the park sells these little passport books, and at each visitor center, there's a there's a little ink stamp that that has that day's date on it, the name of the site, and uh, so there are a lot of visitors that come through. That you know, most of the time they'll want to stick around and, and see the site as well. But you know, first and foremost, they're there to get their stamp. I'm curious to know, are you connected uh, to any of her descendants? We are actually, yeah. Uh, that's a great question. Um, 
you know, it's, it's amazing. I think one of the one of the neatest things that, that we're able to tell people on tour today, and when we're going through her house talking about her family, is that uh, she does have a granddaughter still living, um, and uh, it's her youngest granddaughter. Uh, it was the youngest daughter of Mrs. Walker's youngest son, Melvin. Her name's Elizabeth, and uh, she turned ninety actually at the end of September, this past September. And wow. uh, and she not only lives in Richmond, she lives a block and a half away from Mrs. Walker's home. So she lives really close by, and and she not and Elizabeth doesn't live in just any house either. Uh, she lives in the home that her own mother was born in. Uh, so Melvin's wife that was the home that Melvin's wife was was born in. Uh, and so she's she's still in town. Uh, she comes by the site uh, from time to time, but she also has. Yes, um, I'm back again, and I'm, I'm very interested in this topic. Uh, I'm so glad that it's been brought on. But I was curious about the streetcar boycott mm-hmm. uh, after 1900. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, that area of Virginia was integrated prior to that, and that Miss Walker came along later on, again, after the 1900s, to start a, a streetcar boycott. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, well, the, the streetcar boycott was with uh, the public streetcar system you know, in, in Richmond that, uh, that you know, and, and the one that starts in Richmond, the boycott that starts here in Richmond was, was really gets underway in 1904. Um, and, you know, it, it's happening, you know, Richmond streetcar boycott, by the way, happens, you know, amidst, a, you know, what I would call a rash of other streetcar boycotts that are happening all throughout the South. You know, you know Richmond, you know, the fact that a boycott of, of segregated seating on, on public transportation in Richmond was uh, occurring in 1904 is no accident, uh, but it's also not an anomaly. You know, this, is, this is happening all throughout the South as well. Um, but, you know, I think, first of all, to kind of understand the, the boycott itself, it's important to kind of go back a couple of years uh, to first understand that, you know, in 1902, uh, the, you know, Virginia, the state of Virginia had, had passed a state constitution that – uh, that effectively, uh, effectively, uh, basically eliminated uh, voting rights for almost the heavy, heavy majority of, of the African American voting you know, population at that time. Um, essentially, you know, of course, not only by instituting a poll tax, but also by uh, by making it, uh, you know, by making it mandatory that they have to, you know, have to pass these literacy tests as well. Uh, and so this is the boycott is, of course, happening in, in, in the backdrop of that, uh, essentially an assault, a full-on assault on the rights of African Americans that really, you know, effectively kind of radicalizes. Uh, I think the, the the black population, Maggie Walker included. So 1904 comes along, and uh, and. You know, the, the state tries to enforce segregation on public streetcars. Uh, this was, uh, you know, and, and we should say also one other thing that this was this was not necessarily a case like you know when we think about streetcar boycotts or bus boycotts in the mid '50s, you know, where you had you know whites sitting up front and, and blacks in the back. That was generally the idea, but again, there was never a guarantee that uh, that a black consumer could even have a, a seat uh, on these streetcars. Uh, first of all, so as as much as you know, uh, African American you know, working class primarily were relying on these streetcars to get from place to place. The idea that they could no longer be guaranteed a seat uh, was certainly in front. And then on top of that, you had to really make this effective to keep the races separate and to keep uh, access to these streetcars as uh, as in the hands uh, of white people as possible. 
what the state did in Virginia or in, in Richmond was actually allow the streetcar operators, uh, essentially making them, you know, kind of deputizing them uh, as police officers. They gave them you know, the legal authority to arrest people uh, who, who were, in their minds, creating a disturbance uh, on these cars. They actually gave them weapons, too. Um, and so uh, if they, if someone was, was trying to protest and then was getting out of hand, they could, of course, stop the car at any time and kick them out. But if things got out of hand, they could actually uh, shoot these people and kill them, and there was no legal redress for it. Uh, that was that was okay. Um, and so I think that was really, you know, the experience of that, the idea that the state would actually try to pass something like that on top of, you know, this 1902 uh, state constitution was just – uh, was outrageous, uh, you know, as it should have been seen. Um, <clears throat> but what you had was, uh, you know, Maggie Walker, I, I don't think it's quite fair to say that she started the boycott. Uh, John Mitchell Jr. was, was, uh, I think, as far as history books are concerned, really, uh, you know, uh, kind of becomes the, the de facto head of it. Uh, she gets involved, though, no question about it. Uh, of course, by that time, she has a, she has a newspaper, the, the St. Luke Carroll, which is, uh, you know, it, it, it's two years old at that time. And um, and she uses it, uh, of course, to uh, to provide sets of instructions uh, and a sense of organization to the boycott itself. You know, in, inform people, the readers of the of the Herald, what their options were. If they had previously relied on the streetcars to get to work, to get from place to place, um, you know, uh, either walk uh, if they can. That was the big suggestion, or uh, to employ uh, employ drivers, black drivers. Uh, there were no black streetcars. It seems very, very familiar with uh, deputizing individuals. Uh, kind of reminds us of uh, contemporary things going on, or particularly in Ferguson, Missouri. Mm. And we call the uh, Zimmerman. Uh, Indeed, the there Indeed. For Yeah, that's that's not new. Uh, as scary as that is to say, um, and you know, it's interesting because you know when you look at. Um, when you look at how some historians have judged the black response to these you know, streetcar boycotts in Richmond and elsewhere by simply, you know, not trying to mount a, you know, a, a significant legal challenge to the law or, you know, or simply by uh, trying to encourage black people to respond by walking, you know, not let, let's not take this matter to the courts. Let's just walk uh, and, and essentially keep it to ourselves. Historians have sometimes, you know, looked at that and said this is a conservative reaction to it. Uh, and uh, and that's and I think that that's it's <laughs> it obscures the fact that you know by deputizing you know by the state having deputized these folks and by giving them the you know the authority to shoot uh, some of these passengers on site if they're deemed to be uh, troublemakers so to speak uh, then you know what that says is that you know the state was not you know passing a law like this with the assumption that these folks are just going to take it passively. Uh, they're they're passing it, knowing that there's going to be a reaction. And I think these, you know, the, this idea of of uh, you know why it was important, you know, for the state or for the city to to give these these streetcar operators uh, that level of authority uh, was because you know they were kind of presupposing a level of, of activism within within the community. And, uh, and I think when when it comes to you know when that when that's realized, uh, I think the idea is well, my gosh. Um, you know, well, we we walk or we get shot. And what which, what would you do? I mean, it's just not it's not fair. I think to call that conservative because they don't take it to the courts. This is this is literally an issue that that becomes life or death. Uh, <clears throat> so it's important, I think, certainly 
to keep that in mind. And I think one of the other things that they that they realized was was of course by walking and by not going on the streetcar something that the folks, you know, obviously when we think about Montgomery, uh, you know, about fifty fifty years later. Uh, what they realize is that you know, uh, then you know, taking that stance obviously is is a way to it makes it harder, obviously, on on the people doing the walking, uh, certainly. But um, but it hits uh, it hits the folks in power right you know in one place where it really hurts, uh, that being the pocketbook. Uh, and you know, the the company running the streetcars in Richmond, the Virginia Power and Passenger Company, uh, does go bankrupt um, uh, later in the summer of 1904. It does get funded. Uh, by another source, I can't remember which, uh, and keeps going. But uh, but there was a tangible tangible effect uh, that came from from the streetcar boycotts in '04 uh, that didn't necessarily come out of every one of the boycotts that happened uh, elsewhere mm-hmm. in the South. So. Yeah. Um, uh, lastly, are, are there any takeaways uh, with this particular project, and specifically for the future? Uh, many historical sites. Uh, or uh, artifacts that represent people and the work that they did, there's usually a vision. You know, you've got a five, ten-year plan about what you would like to see or or add to the project. Uh, Is is there any consideration to that going on? And what can people take away um, in in terms of books or films or any documentation that they can leave with them to have in their hands? Oh, wow. So as far as if, if you're asking about the project, meaning the work of the historical site, Yes. Is that, is that yeah. Um, well, what we what we really want to impart to to visitors uh, is uh, in part, you know, one of the things that the, the National Park Service really wants uh, all their visitors at all the sites uh, to really get a sense of is really the universality of of the topic uh, that they're that they're learning about. Um, and and so, you know, as interpreters at a, at a National Park Service site, we're really kind of trained. Uh, as we take visitors through to kind of you know not only be be knowledgeable about the the the, the certain concrete facts about uh such a you know some somebody's life you know in the case of you know, certainly in the case of Maggie walker but uh but also to be able to kind of center our interpretation on um <clears throat> you know on you know kind of the universal aspects of things that she experiences that we can relate to today uh so you know we want people you know it's obviously it's a it's a very tall order. Um, you know, to to you know, hundred years later, uh, to to talk to visitors about uh, about the experiences of an African American woman in the turn of the century, Richmond, over a hundred years ago, uh, and really try to you know hope that they get a sense of exactly what that was like. That's a very difficult thing to do, um, but we try to touch on the fact that you know, we try to you know, of course with her, uh, there's so much so much positive uh, stuff to talk about in terms of you know what she overcomes uh, and how she's able to overcome it. Um, uh, and not just in terms of you know what she's able to do as the leader of the Independent Order of St. Luke, but also as an entrepreneur uh, in the former capital of the Confederacy, uh, the height of Jim Crow era segregation, long before women could vote, uh, to really touch on you know just how rare uh, and, and significant her achievements were for for the time being, um, and just to have simply you know people be impressed by that is, is one thing, but uh, but you know by seeing her house, we really hope that people get a sense of. Uh, of who she was, that you know, that behind all of the, the the important business activity that she was a part of, this is someone who, you know, also had you know a, a large and, and vibrant family um, that uh, you know uh, that also you know of course cared about them you know very very deeply uh, and had some of the same issues of her families uh, that that we have today, 
Uh, and so it's, time, you know, it's so it's kind of to try to do double duty to really humanize her, uh, to really give her a sense of, of what she does, on how she does it. But it's also important too, uh, you know, as she even put in, in some of her writings, that she wanted people to learn about her, not just to know about her, but also to be inspired uh, by her story. And she actually wrote in her diaries that she wanted people to come to her house to be impressed by the material things that she could afford. But she also wanted those same visitors to leave her home. Uh, inspired to achieve success on a similar level. So I think at the end of the day, we, we think we've done our job uh, when when visitors leave, not just knowing about Maggie Walker, knowing who she was, when she was born, uh, what she does, uh, but to do, uh, you know, or, but to feel, you know, as she wanted them to feel, uh, which is that they can go out and they can do these things uh, if they put their mind to it. Certainly if she was able to do it, given given the context of her uh, that she was working with, uh, of course, all the overlapping contexts of that time period, her race, her gender, uh, that uh, that that issues that we might face today uh, might <laughs> that we might think are, are really really difficult. Uh, my gosh, if we can think back and use her as an example, uh, we, we can feel a little bit more empowered uh, to to overcome them uh, the way she did it. If she can do it, then maybe we can. Uh, so I think that's that that's, that's something we really go for. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful, and it was really uh, empowering yeah. just listening to you talk about. Her life and her story. I wish you much, much uh, success with the uh, the project, and I hope that plenty oh, of people you. in the future will come and not stumble upon uh, the house, but also come yeah. to, to view it. Uh, so, uh, with that being said, uh, Mr. Anderson from the National Park Service, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and in okay. the future, if you need any information, please let us know. We'd love to have you back on. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you. And, and if I may, um, uh, I'd love to. Uh, am I allowed to plug our Facebook page? Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Um, you know, please, uh, if you're interested in uh, learning more about Maggie Walker, please, uh, uh, please like uh, the Maggie Walker Facebook page. Uh, we post uh, we post new little tidbits about her life. Uh, you know, every every few days usually. Um, and just then it's a way, it's a really important way for people to access, you know, information about her life and really sometimes even experience uh, the site, uh, even if they can't get there in person. We also have a website, uh, www.nps.gov, G-O-V, uh, backslash MAWA, M-A-W-A. Uh, and we do have a couple of upcoming events uh, that would be, that'd be great uh, for people to know about. We're doing, uh, during the week of December 16th to the 19th, we're going to be doing themed house tours. Uh, that are focusing on the 80th anniversary of Mrs. Walker's death. She passed away on December 15th, 1934. Um, and so that week, we're going to be doing uh, tours of the house that really focus on uh, on uh, uh, on her death and, of course, the, the role the house played in it, what the role of her legacy was, and how the funeral took place and so forth, something we don't normally do. Uh, we're also going to be doing a film series in February, uh, every Saturday and next February. Uh, it's called Matinees with Miss Maggie. Uh, it's every Saturday at 1 o'clock. Uh, right now, the plan is to show the films on site, but we're going to be uh, this year showing some films from Mrs. Walker's time to give, sense, give uh, visitors a sense of what films were like uh, back then. We have a silent film and, and three sound films that, we're, that we plan to show. And, uh, and also, uh, but uh, not just showing any films, but films that we can also connect uh, to Maggie Walker, uh, the neighborhood, and uh, some famous Richmond residents. So, uh, hopefully, hopefully, some listeners will will be uh, will be inspired to come out and and and, uh, uh, and and share that with us. We'd love to have them. That's wonderful, and we want to also promote the iron for you guys. Oh, thank you so much. We'd love uh, we'd love to we'd love to have that. That that'll be invaluable. Thank you. Uh, thank you again, and good night. Uh, thank you. Good night.